This week, we wanted Evan to confront his inner demons, but an intervention seemed like too much work, so instead we just made him watch Jacob's Ladder. Welcome back to How Did You Miss This, a show where we fill the hellhole-sized gaps in our movie-watching history. I'm Evan Teller-Hickey, and with me as always, Michael Hansen and Chris Shane. And today, we are going to be talking about the 1990 cult classic, Jacob's Ladder. Um, this was voted hard for by Michael in the way that I voted hard for Empire Records and Chris voted hard for the town. Um, I totally missed this. What about uh, you, Chris? Uh, I, I didn't miss this movie. I saw this movie when I was maybe... 13 at a house party and somebody was like, Hey, let's put on a horror movie. And we we're like, yeah. And then we watched it and we were like, Nope. Uh, so I haven't seen it since I was 13. Uh, cause I think it went over my 13 year old head. Uh, and I haven't watched it since, but Michael, why is this the movie? This movie hits all of my buttons in terms of the, set up the story, the mood. Um, this we'll talk about the twist in this. This movie uses a twist the same way that movies like Inception or you know the, those types that kind of they, they have it built in. There's a there's a continuous thread throughout. It's not just I'm gonna pull a twist at the end and wow I didn't see that coming and that was so different. Um, so thematically everything about this is everything that I look for uh, in a movie. And part of that is it's gonna be so fun to get poked at um, about this movie because I did it with the two of you. But this was one of those formative years. It really left an impression and I've come back to watch this over and over. One of my most cherished movies for all the wrong reasons. Well, you know, I I missed this movie. 1990 was 10 or 11 years old. Uh, I guess it, this came out in November of 1990. So I guess it would have been 11 years old at that time. I, I don't think this this movie came anywhere near my uh, my small town movie theater. And uh, as a cult classic, you know, it's one of those things that goes to VHS or DVD, Blu-ray, and you just uh, you just miss. So, um yeah, it, it went completely under my radar up until this point. I think the only sort of touch point that I had for it was uh, listening to another great movie podcast, How Did This Get Made? And they referenced Jacob's Ladder frequently as is like, oh, is this going to be another Jacob's Ladder scenario? Uh, and I'm really uh, I was really curious to see what they meant by that. And and now, now I know. you know. Now, now I you know. know. Well, before we talk about what we actually thought about the movie and breaking it down, why don't we talk a little bit about how this movie got made? Yeah. So this movie is written by Bruce Joel Rubin, and uh, he is sort of best known for writing the screenplay to Ghost, which also came out in 1990 and won uh, Best Screenplay at the Oscars. And so he's got two really interesting movies coming out that year, Ghost and Jacob's Ladder, tonally very, very different, but both dealing with the supernatural. And evidently it took him about 10 years to get both of these things made. He, he wrote both Ghost and Jacob's Ladder around 1980. Uh, and Jacob's Ladder, from uh, what I was reading about him, came to him in a dream, or certainly the setup for it came to him in a dream, where he was in a New York subway station and couldn't get out. You couldn't get to the surface. And that is such an important scene in that sort of first act of, of Jacob's Ladder. Um, so then he, you know, gets some heat behind the screenplay for this. Like it was, it was named one of the best unproduced scripts in Hollywood and, uh, and starts to get some heat and uh, Paramount picks up both Ghost and Jacob's Ladder, but then sort of 
passes on Jacob's Ladder, uh, an independent production company, um, Caraloco Pictures, comes in and grabs it and gives it a, a $25 million budget um, but uh, and, and more creative control for Ruben and the director they attached to it, Adrian Lin, who had recently been nominated for uh, Best Director for Fatal Attraction. And he's also made uh, Flashdance in nine and a half weeks. He makes a decent proposal um, after this. So, you know, one of those guys who's into, with the exception of Flashdance, kind of like um, sexy thrillers, I guess. Yeah, it's it's uh, an an interesting one because in the ten years that it took to to get this made, like you're saying, Evan, between you know 1980 and then 89 when they were filming this, I mean this this movie went through a bunch of iterations because it got picked up by Paramount along with Ghost, which Paramount capped. Um, there was a number of directors who nearly did this, uh, so um, uh, like Ridley Scott, Sidney Lumet. Um, like a bunch of folks who nearly were directing this, but because it took so long and then, you know, things weren't happening and then, you know, it didn't get picked up by studios. They, they moved on to other work. So I, I do think it's, it's interesting to see it, um, it, it land with Adrian line. Um, and I think it's also the same kind of thing that happened with a bunch of the casting options as they were starting to try to get this made too, because there's a bunch of um, better known names than Tim Robbins who were uh, nearly in this movie at different points and all kind of wound up again, moving on to different things. So folks like Tom Hanks or Dustin Hoffman or um, Alec Baldwin, Al Pacino, whatever, all these different folks who kind of got looked at and moved on to, to different things. But like you were saying, like this is a, uh, a pretty unique movie be getting made in in this era because it is and and Ghost as well. I mean, they're both about you know death and dying and afterlife and is there a you know is there really a hard line between these two things or is there actually you know a, a, a gradient between them? A lot of this goes back to um, Bruce Joel Rubin's you know time that he spent kind of traveling the world and, you know, living in Tibetan monasteries and Buddhist uh, monasteries and stuff in Southeast Asia and, um, you know, dropping LSD, which gave him this kind of like, you know, need to travel the world and explore this part of the thing. And then he came back, went to film school with a bunch of folks like um, Brian De Palma and Scorsese, who were his, you know, classmates when he attended a few classes and then kind of helped him get, um, you know, back into Hollywood after he'd kind of been living in, in the middle of nowhere, writing these things for a while. So, I mean, it's a weird trip that this thing takes to actually finally getting made. And it's a weird trip, I think in the movie itself. But, um, when this came out, uh, in, in 1990, uh, tail end in November, uh, it had an initial, um, good run for a, a week or so, but then it really fell off quickly. So it, it had a budget of 25 million bucks, uh, but it only made 26 million at the box office. So barely breaking even. Um, and the reviews for it were pretty mixed. Like some people really love the story and how it explores a whole bunch of different themes and ideas. Other folks, um, thought it was kind of confused and directionless. So it's a really hit or miss thing with a lot of the critics. Um, and right now it's got a, a 72% on, on Rotten Tomatoes. So, you know, and it's again, kind of a very high or low reviews, not a lot of like in the middle kind of stuff. So I'm very curious um, for you, Evan, having, you know, not seen this before. What did you think of this movie after you, you saw it? Well, you know, I know Michael is, is very, concerned uh, that we're going to spend a lot of time poking holes in this movie. Um, I, I'm really glad I watched it. I, 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 I dug this movie, Michael. Thank you for, for bringing it to my attention. I hope that, I hope that, oh, it does bring a smile to your face. I can, I can see you doing that. So I'm, I'm glad I watched this. This movie uh, has, has stuck with me. A, a little bit, and uh, I'm very excited to uh, to talk about it. Chris, how about you? Does your 13 year old self uh, was like, nope? And I could totally see that. How is your not 13 year old self? Uh, you know, 30 years later. Yeah, I, I, I uh, this movie's fine. I don't 
love it. I don't dislike it. I just, I was happy when it was over. I mean, I, I, I didn't particularly enjoy watching this. I, I found there's just too much going on and there's, uh, tries to tie too many things into it, which I'm sure we'll be talking about. It's fine. I mean, I can understand how it might speak to certain people. It doesn't speak to me. Uh, but Michael, for your, I don't know how many a three watch, was this still something that you, you love and, and snuggle up with? It is funny because I, I, I was watching this and then my wife said, I'm not sure this is general watching. Um, because she sort of like overlooked over my shoulder as I'm doing, and it's like, yeah, you're right. Like we have to be very careful about how we present this movie because it's not for for everyone. It's got some stuff in it that could be really off putting uh, that I'd actually even forgotten about. But coming back to to see it, yeah, it is. It really gave me that warm nostalgic feeling, and it was my my experience of this. How can I separate out? the initial feeling that I had when I was a teenager and watch it, how can I separate that out from who I am today? And I'm not sure that I objectively can do that. All I can say is just, I really enjoy these types of movies so much that can I have, it's just a continuum. Um, and, and I already mentioned uh, Inception, but if you look at things like um, 12 Monkeys or you, you like these movies are just going to have, they just keep moving deeper and deeper and they don't explain anything. And you just kind of like figure it out as you go. Uh, plus the theme around loss and um, and just kind of like questioning everything around you. Like, yeah, that still all totally speak to me. And, and I was super glad I, I watched it again. Well, there you go. So good spot for a break. Uh, and on the other side, we'll get into what we think of why we had our opinions that we do. Welcome back so we are going to probably spoil even more than usual potentially with with this movie than we normally do there's uh uh, a lot coming so if you don't want us to spoil it if you're gonna go watch it uh then go watch it and then come back and listen to us talk about it uh so this movie is about a guy named Jacob Singer. Uh, he's not a ladder salesman, though. He's actually a Vietnam War vet uh, who is experiencing hallucinations and flashbacks. Uh, he tries to make sense of his realities, delving into this kind of like dark and mysterious world uh, where he has to confront his past. Uh, and he ends up kind of questioning his his sanity uh, and what's real in the process. So um, this movie goes in a lot of different directions. And I think one of the first things that I think is kind of hard to put your finger on is like, what, what kind of movie is this? I mean, it's a really good question. I think we can kind of put it in the horror, psychological horror kind of basket there's there's a lot going on in this movie. You know, is it a war movie? Is it a, a thriller? Is it a mystery? Is it a conspiracy? And this this movie is, um, I think, a, a little not even a little, just really overstuffed with ideas. And I think that that is a good reason to if it if it sort of uh resonates with you to kind of keep coming back to it and i think that that's why it may have become a cult classic um because there is so much to dig into and so many things left um up to discussion i think so i'm going to say that it's like a psychological horror Michael? Right. And it doesn't really, and I'd like to think it doesn't really play its hand until the end, because for the longest time you might think, well, this is a government cover-up and this is sort of like someone suffering through this and can't make sense. But here's at least the the answer. Here's what's been going on. You've been experimented on and, you know, like that, that could have been the movie. And then there's, of course, the twist at the end. And and I, I think that you're right. There's a lot of things going on. There are a lot of backstories. There are a lot of uh, topics around grief and guilt and all of this uh, coming together. I, you know, I'm very generous in my opinion about it. I think that they tie together quite well. 
And I think it's one of these movies that end on, and I'm going to say it on, on like a happy, optimistic note, but you know, we're, we're going to have to dig into that, uh, I think, as, as we go. Yeah, I, 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 for me, I think to Evan's point, that's where I struggle a little bit because it's so many different things. I wish it was half as many things done better. Uh, like with more focus on those things. Cause I think it could have been, uh, a more, um, uh, thoughtful exploration of death and guilt. Okay. That could have been like spent more time in that area. It could have been a more intense horror movie. Uh, okay. You could have spent more time on that area. I felt the storylines about the, the, the drugs and the like, conspiracy didn't need to be in there um and the war itself i mean that was just kind of a little bit unnecessary too so i i just found like it was a little bit overbloated that's where i struggled a little bit with, with it i thought all of those threads could have been good interesting ones i think they are good interesting ones it's just i think there's just too many of them and it, this film goes in a few too many directions for me then that's where ultimately i, I kind of struggle but i think that also then asked the the question of you know does that story which is very non-linear does it kind of make sense does it hold together for each of you well i i wonder if it matters um because and and again i i say that as a writer and this is one of the things that that we've come back to both or one of these things that i would like to come back to we've talked about in the vertigo episode how the story doesn't really hold together. It kind of falls apart a bit, um, but it is compelling. And so you continue to watch along. Uh, and we talked about in the Empire Records episode how that story doesn't super hold together, but it's, you know, it's really kind of a vibe. And to me, like this movie is really a vibe and that vibe is deeply unsettling. And if you want to spend nearly two hours being really unsettled, then this is a great thing to put on. Obviously, Michael loves to to be deeply unsettled. And if that's the vibe <laughs> you're going for, um, that makes me go like, okay, as as something that is making me feel something, as as art should, then this is doing its job in that way. Yeah, and I think that is, and again, I'm, I'm going to risk interpreting this in a way that's not told to someone watching it for the first time, but I think you put it really well. Like it's just, it's a continuous descent into something. And then when you realize at the end what that descent actually represented and what he's going through, and it's about kind of like releasing from, you know, his life, then it's like, that makes sense. But I can say that after, you know, 35 years of having watched this many times. So I, I can't really separate out. Is that actually what's going on or is it just because I've been watching it so many times and it's, it's filled that, you know, place uh, in my life? I, I think that's the the interesting part for me. So I, I didn't really remember this movie. Like, I didn't remember what this movie was about from when I saw it as a teenager. Um, so I was largely coming into it as like a, you know, largely blank slate. I remembered it's about a guy named Jacob. And I remember the scene at the end with him walking up the stairs. Uh, that's about all I really remembered. So when it started uh, and you know, they're in Vietnam and then he gets stabbed and he wakes up on the subway immediately uh, after that, I was like, Oh, okay. So he's hallucinating or he's, you know, like I, there was no like, Oh, these are all flashbacks. And except this is what's actually like, I understood immediately what was happening. So I found a lot of that didn't, Add. So kind of to Evan's point, I, I, I found that part of the story, which I don't know if that was supposed to be a surprise as you realized he was actually having these fever dreams in Vietnam or you discovered that. I, I knew that right off the bat. And I think that's maybe where this wasn't as tense or as someone who's watched it before. I, I remembered nothing about this movie. I saw it when I was maybe maybe subconsciously, Chris. Maybe subconsciously, <laughs> yeah, to, yeah, yeah. No, but I think to to your point, like, uh, and and maybe it, it's just something that resonates differently with us. But you know, he gets stabbed and he wakes up on the subway, and you know, I immediately went, oh, 
he was thinking about what happened back in Nam, and but then they they uh, take a shot up on the um, up on the the ad placement uh, at the top of the subway. Right. And yeah, like it's like there's Hell. an ad for New York City. Uh, well, first there's an ad for New York City, and it's like. Um, you know, it, it, you'll you'll uh, never be bored here, kind of thing, and uh, and then it it uh, yeah. scrolls over and it's like hell, um, and it's and underneath it's it's about drugs. Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's a it's a you know like very kind of like Reagan esque um, before Reagan because it takes place in 1975. Yeah, um, but very like an anti drug sort of ad and drugs will get you into hell and and here's the the number you can call kind of thing and it felt to me very much like especially when when he sees like the demon tail under the the uh homeless man on the subway and then gets nearly run over by the subway um with with the s- creepy looking souls in it, demon people, and it's like, oh, okay, he is now literally in the underworld, like, and so that's the that's the sort of transition that I made. It's like he is he is very much trapped in the underworld. Now let's go on this journey. Yeah, I I, I just it was um, I. I, I I guess some of the stakes come out of this movie for me because I, I realized um, from early on that I'm like, okay, well, this is all his subconscious. I think maybe if the the sequence of events at the beginning of the movie, if he had woken up on the subway uh, or had been dreaming on the subway and been having flashbacks in that order, you know what I mean? Like that would have structured it a little bit differently to maybe get me I, to buy I, I in. I don't. Do you mind? Do you mind walking that out a little bit? Because I'm, well, I'm not entirely sure. Because it starts mean. with Vietnam, right? It starts yeah. with him in Vietnam, and then uh, the 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 drugs, and then he gets stabbed, and then he wakes up on the subway, which made me the structure of that made me think, okay, something's happened. Uh, I'm guessing he's just unconscious or something here because the first set of stuff that happens on the train is so weird and bizarre. Uh, and then shortly thereafter sees his chiropractor who gives him the spiel about, you know, uh, uh, life. And, you know, you, the only part of you that burns as hell is the part that's still attached to life. I'm like, okay, that just made me totally believe that this is him, you know, having a fever dream or whatever as he, as he's injured. If it had started in the other order where it was like he, he was on the subway and you just see him like twitching, having a dream or something and get snippets of flashbacks or something. I think it would have been a little bit easier for me to have said, okay, continue to build some or have some of that belief that maybe this is him flashing back, but just because of the way it's ordered and cut, I, I didn't really buy that it was a, a nightmare on the subway. So I, I guess for me getting started, it was like, okay, I, I, I have a pretty good hunch of what's going on. So back to the, the vertigo example you gave Evan, I don't know that that part matters. Um, you know, you're like, but for me, it was like, there's no thriller in this when we got started. Cause I was like, I have a pretty good hunch here. And to Michael's point, maybe I I've got subliminal stuff that was floating around from 30 years ago that I, I remembered, but that's where I struggled um, for much of this movie. Cause I'm like, all right, I get it. Like he's injured. Got it. I actually think so. They, so I think it really works with the flashback because then when they talk about like, how does he end up this super intelligent guy? How does he end up uh, starting to work for the post office? How does he end up just kind of going such a different direction and and that first interaction with with his chiropractor isn't really that yet. He's just more asking that, like you know, how did how did a smart guy like you end up doing something like this? And they have that conversation, and then that triggers another uh, flashback. And then so for me, it really explains like he came back a changed person. Uh, he did a lot of different things, and then you can introduce that a little bit. And but now he also has to try to explain what's going on with me. Like, why am I seeing these things? So for me, it worked. But again, it's so intermeshed with, with all of these years of, of memories that I I don't know. But but Evan, I really want to hear your take on this. Well, no, I, I think that um, you, different things hit people differently, right? And uh, or the same thing can hit people differently. And it worked for me 
um, where it doesn't work for Chris. Like I, I accepted him startling awake on the subway, clutching his side that he was waking up from a dream or that some kind of transition has happened. And, uh, you know, you, you, Chris, to your point about him talking to his chiropractor, Louis, and, and Louis sort of giving this philosophy, that that does come sort of more like two-thirds of the way through the movie. And uh, and so it's still, things are, are still a little bit, um, I don't know, nebulous at that point. But again, like, to me, the symbolism of him being trapped in the underworld is was really obvious. And I was ready to go on that journey with him, you know, as a, you know, if he were like Dante walking through Inferno or like Purgatory or or, or what have you. I, but I think to to Chris's point, and I agree with you that the there don't seem to be or there doesn't seem to be like a whole lot of, of of really tangible stakes to grab onto here. Yeah. I mean, really, the stakes are are Jacob's immortal soul, I guess. But because there's no um, direct adversary, and it's just again, it's just a vibe and him being confused. And sometimes there seems to be an adversary, but is that in his head? And you know, he's he's popping between these different realities. Um, the the overall sort of like stakes for him as as a character the stakes for us watching him as a character i think are diminished yeah and so i think that that can make the uh narrative feel flat but i'm super into the vibe so uh, that this movie is putting forward so i'm i'm happy to go along for the ride. And I'm really like digging the symbolism that it keeps, you know, tossing us because this is like very rooted in, you know, Judeo Christian morality and, uh, you know, and, and death medieval, and, and yeah, what happens after and, and yeah. birth. And, yeah. and, uh, I, and, and I was really kind of excited by that and trying to, tease it all apart and figuring like, okay, like, can I try to figure out what Jacob's kind of sin is that he's in purgatory for, um, or, or in hell for, because he, he may very well be in hell. I mean, they've put it up on the subway advertisement mm -hmm. hell. And so, you know, what is he, uh, atoning for? And I have some theories on that, uh, and it has to do with the ice bath scene where um, Tim Robbins, Jacob, is, is burning up and is thrown into the ice water uh, in the in the tub to keep his temperature from like boiling his brain, mm -hmm. and then he flashes from there to with where he's living um, with uh, uh, his lover Jezebel Jesse, and ends up um, back in in sort of whatever alternate timeline where he is still with his wife. Yeah, and, the windows open uh, and it's and, cold and yeah, exactly, and that put me in the mind. It was that moment where I was like, oh, the, the ninth circle of hell in Dante uh, is for treachery and betrayal. And people are in a lake of ice there. They're, uh, they're, they're trapped in a lake of ice. And so it made me go like, oh, okay, here's this guy in ice water in the bath and he's dealing with ideas of, of infidelity, um, because he's talking about to his wife, I had this crazy dream. Like I was living with another woman. It was, it was Jesse from, you know, remember my coworker from, from the post office, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and so you've got that, but then it also feeds into a larger narrative of the treachery or betrayal 
that he may have done in Vietnam if, in fact, this whole drug narrative uh, where like the U.S. Army has drugged his platoon with uh, this this drug, the latter, uh, that uh, that's supposed to make them more aggressive. And instead of fighting the Viet Cong, they go and like basically murder each other. Um, and so there's this sense of, of like, Oh, is there, is there a betrayal that happened there as well? And so that is my, that is my thoughts on, on his, his sort of sin. I, I look at it a little bit easier or simpler than that. Like, I think, I think that it's just so explained in the end, like that, that, that chiropractor conversation that they have that just it's his inability to let go like he's holding on to like he's not ready to go he's thinking about everything uh, back home he's still holding on to all of these ideas and dreams and that's what's causing this he needs to go through all of these steps to finally get to a point where he can realize okay well this is it I, I, I need to let go and then he can do it in a joyful way and he can be led you know up the stairs and, and be at peace. But I think he had to go through all of those steps, not necessarily because he had done anything. He carried this terrible sin, but it just, he was not ready to let, let go. And then you see everyone around you as demons trying to rip you away. But the second that you're able to just kind of accept your fate, then you can see them as, as angels that are coming to you to take you away to, you know, to the next place. Yeah. And I guess like, you know, the big spoil of the ending. So he was dead the whole time uh, or at least fighting dying, for his life. Dying. Yeah, that's the, I think that's the that's the challenging part about it, too, is because um, um, and I mean, it's the interesting and challenging part about it is uh, it's not clear. Right. It's not clear if he was dead the whole time. It's not clear how much of the stories about these different relationships are um true or invented in his own brain things that he uh you know was there betrayal there with his wife like were was it actually his ex-wife or was it his ex-wife because now he's dead like do you know what i mean like i i so i i had a hard time um stitching those together which makes for interesting conversation and theory crafting about well what was really happening who did what you know what actually happened to his son and what role did he play in that where he and his wife separated and so then he only gets to spend time with gabe on the weekend and you know what like well I, you don't know a lot of these things so you're kind of forced to fill in those blanks which as as we've learned i think evan enjoys a lot and i don't always love um so i mean i think we're understanding partly how we got to where we are on on our views on this movie um so uh, but i do think evan you kind of touched on it like th there is definitely um a, a tone that sits over this this movie uh which is um i would suggest not one of cotton candy fun puppies and unicorns I, am i wrong oh i think you are uh, i think you are very right like this movie has such an un deeply unsettling tone in and and that is crafted i think beautifully uh in camera i think beautifully with the performances um i really love how uh they use 1970s New York as its own kind of character. And that I, I, you really have to sort of like, I was wondering like, okay, so um, is New York in the seventies, like a greater hell than being in Vietnam? Like it really like seems terrible. Uh, and, and the, the way that, um the the cinematography takes you through this world and that you only catch glimpses of all of these sort of horrific things the the demons with and there is one big notable exception in the scene in uh the asylum hospital but everything is done really well just to make you feel creeped out and kind of icky. And I think that this movie achieves that so masterfully. And I, I thought I, I was really impressed. 
Yeah, I think I think it also it works the best when it's the creepy thing more so than the the you know the the gory things, the creepy things. When you kind of have he's he finally thinks he's got like a moment. He's back with his wife, but then there's that voiceover dream on, or later he just back in the apartment and he sees you know this person with the insect sort of shaky head and it just like there's these creepiness that just kind of gets you Ugh. but that i think is when it works the best and then sometimes when it's the the most obvious whether it's gore or whether it is like part of the the, the people that you see at the asylum like you mentioned the hospital it's probably a little bit much but i really for me it really works this descent it's just it's constant right it goes a little bit deeper 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 it's every now and then he gets his head above the the, the surface catch some some air but then it's just like dragged back into it yeah i i'd agree i think i think from for me that tone of kind of um you know it's 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 dark it's a little unsettling i i think it's also you get that sense of um just how unpleasant it is like something's going on that's really unpleasant and then there's these really unsettling moments that tie into to kind of give it that that next level up like michael said i think the 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 hospital scene goes a little much for me although i think it's the scariest or creepiest by far part of of the movie but it definitely goes over the top i i will say though that i found the like the last act like the last third of it kind of moves away from that tone a little bit though um where it becomes a little bit more um of that kind of like conspiracy thing. What happened to these guys in Vietnam? Who, what, who's this guy who knows about the drugs? You don't get quite as many of those um, creepy unsettling moments. You get some, but not that I, I find it skews away from that where you had a lot more of that in the beginning and a lot less as you move. It, it's a good point. But for me, for me, it's explained by like, now they're finally starting to kind of, they're, they're, they're getting an explanation for what is causing this. Why are they experiencing this? And it kind of, so I think it makes sense that it takes a different uh, tone uh, for that because now they're kind of like, we're going to get to the bottom of this. They get uh, Jason Alexander as their, the, as their, their, their lawyer, lawyer to look into this and kind of investigate. And it's like, we're finally going to get to the bottom. Uh, and then when that falls apart, then you're into this final act of just, ugh. You know. I think also, not just story wise, but, but from a uh, filmmaking and like the the real aspects of filmmaking point of view um that uh the so this was tested in front of audiences uh and they're, they're decidedly mixed um reviews from it and they cut about 20 minutes out of this film. And I did some digging into some of the deleted scenes, uh, which really go a lot farther in the, uh, whole like BZ drug thing. And Jacob yep. goes and he takes an antidote from, um, the, the chemist. Yeah. Uh, Those scenes are created the drug. Too. Yeah. They are intense. And so that really, that starts connecting really mm. that, that scene where he's tripping out on the bed, uh, and blood is coming down from the ceiling and the ceiling is shattering and he can't move and demon tentacles and yeah, are yeah. coming through the ceiling kind of tie the drug and the demon narrative together a little bit. Yeah. Uh, there's also an alternate ending where he faces instead of instead of uh, Gabe leading him up the, the stairway, he faces Jezebel Yeah. Uh, who turns into a demon and uh, what is, and eventually becomes one of those demons with the bag over their head. And he pulls the, the bag off demons. and it's yeah. his, it's his face staring back. And then he, he comes to, he comes to, to acceptance there. So, you know, there is, there is really um, some stuff that would, that was, just literally cut from the film that I think maybe would have tied that a little bit more together. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think that again, it, it's more of the vibe that, that you've got to ride rather than feeling like, Oh, okay. This gets tied up or this seems like it, uh, is being introduced and then doesn't go anywhere. 
Well, speaking of tying things up, uh, it's probably worth a quick conversation about the ending and how this movie actually does wrap up. But maybe it's time for a quick break. And on the other side, we can talk about how the movie ends. Uh, welcome back. So, um, how this movie ends, I'm very curious, uh, how each of you thinks, um, like, I think you're both going to enjoy how it ends. Uh, but I'm, I'm very curious for your thoughts on, on how this movie ends. Cause there's almost kind of three endings to this movie one after another. And I'm curious for your thoughts. I, I, I found it satisfying. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, Jacob is led to heaven by his son, Gabe. And then we cut to Vietnam and we find out that he is dead in the infirmary tent. Uh, and the doctor's like, well, he put up one hell of a fight, which made me go, oh, so all of those moments where he's like, almost killed by like being run over or uh, it's usually being run over yeah, by something, yeah. a subway or a car uh, or, or being thrown out of a car. Um, all of those moments are these moments where um, like he sort of like flatlined and then kind of came back. Yeah. Um, but then there's that final title card. It fades to black and you get this like card saying that, uh, you know, the U.S. military experimented with the drug BZ on soldiers that the Pentagon denies this. And I was like, what? what? Yeah, this this th like it, it was one additional thing where I was like, oh, so. Okay, now, now I'm like, I I, I didn't need that. I, I I didn't need this suddenly to become like a a, a PSA or yeah. a moralizing thing or a conspiracy uh, you know, about the uh, U.S. Yeah, military. So, so now, or, yeah, yeah. Like now, audience, now that you know this, go out and write your Congress people. Like it just it it seemed very. Um, like of all the things that are strange about this movie, that to me was the weirdest choice. It certainly doesn't fit. And and I probably would have reacted to it more if I'd seen it here the first time. But growing up in Sweden, watched it. It just was like, oh, that's interesting. They did an experimentation. Okay. And it was like, I don't think it it reacted with me that way. But for sure, it, it does not belong. It doesn't help the narrative. It doesn't help me with the enjoyment of the movie, doesn't put it in context at all. Uh, but in terms of how it ends, like I'm, I am so pleased with how it ends. The, everything from how when uh, Louis comes to uh, rescue him from the hospital and he takes care of him and he gets him back up again and he goes back to his old apartment and he's greeted, you know, like Dr. Singer comes in and it still has that like terror there because he, he sees like a, a vision in the apartment. But then... He sees Gabe, and it's just to me that is such a nice conclusion to the whole thing. And it's where, yeah, you you have to suffer through a lot in this movie to to get there. And I don't recommend it just for for everyone. But the ending to me is so satisfying; like it just feels so nice for him to get that uh, conclusion. Uh, I think one of the interesting things too about that conclusion and being with his son Gabe is uh, Macaulay Culkin's in this movie. What? No, and not just in this movie, but uncredited in this movie, which is so strange to yeah, me. Yeah, he plays such a large he part. Plays he plays a really large part and has much more screen time than a lot of other people who are credited, which made me wonder, did they ask for him to be uncredited? Because Home Alone opens like a month later and that ends up being, you know, box office gold. One of the the biggest movies yeah, ever. they didn't know and, that going in, though. I, 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 from what I had heard, yeah. it's it's partly as a result of um, um, his dad, like Macaulay Culkin's dad, who is 
uh, you know, Macaulay Culkin doesn't have the best relationship with his parents. And his dad was apparently notoriously uh, difficult and whatever to work with. So uh, some of the rumors are that it was more having to do with Macaulay Culkin's manager slash daddy uh, that made it difficult. So I I, I don't know whether it was an intentional thing or yeah, I, I don't know. But it is bizarre that not uh not to have him credited for such i mean short of elizabeth pena like he probably has more screen time to your point evan than anybody else in this movie so i think i think it's not just the screen time but it's what he does with it or the impact it has with that because he yeah i couldn't picture a better person cast for this because he represents just the the best the best of being a parent the best of that age the so even in the scenes when he's not in, but they refer to him, it still kind of triggers that. So I, I think it is brilliant casting and they do such a good job with how they use him in the in the scenes. Yeah, I think his, his acting is really strong, too. And uh, and some of the most beautiful moments in this film. And there are some really beautiful moments. Um is when like Tim Robbins is tucking Macaulay Culkin in and, and he just, he, he seems like a really good dad. And then his, his other boys have a bunk bed in the same room and, and, and it feels really um, natural and really yeah, real. It's yeah. like one of the kids wakes up and he's like, you didn't give me my allowance. And he's like, it's five in the morning. Like, we'll talk about this later. And it's like, yeah, that's like that feels very much like a real domestic moment. And it's um, I think a real testament to Tim Robbins as an actor to bring that sort of really loving fatherly moments. And then these moments of harrowing insanity and anger and joy. I think Tim Robbins and this might be one of the reasons why this is has stayed so strong as a cult classic. Tim Robbins is really, really good in this yeah. movie. I think that that there are a lot of very, very good performances in this movie. Yeah. And and, and to your point too, it's a, a huge range of of um you know, performances in this movie too, right? From uh, relationships with uh, a, a wife, a lover, his kids, uh, you know, these t- scenes of terror and bewilderment. Like there, there's a huge range of stuff. I think Tim Robbins is is great in this movie. I, I really do think he's he's great. And I mean, this, this is kind of a, a step away from um, some of the more comedic stuff he'd been doing. Uh, gives him a chance to get into more of a, a dramatic role. I mean, it's a few years after that that you get, you know, probably his pinnacle slept on movie, which is Shawshank Redemption, uh, I think three or four years after this. But I mean, he yeah, I think he, I think he's great. The other thing I think he is, is really frigging tall. And I forget that every time I see Tim Robbins in something until he's just towering over people. And you're like, oh, right. He's giant. <laughs> Like when Jesse climbs into the shower with him and like comes up to like his belly button, you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot Tim. He's just huge. I have no segue from that. Just I needed to say Tim Robbins yeah. is a giant. Tim Robbins movie. is huge. Um, so in terms of the, perf- the natural, the natural segue would be that's what she said. Jeez. <laughs> oh, um, so in terms of uh, the other performances in this movie, I mean, we've kind of touched on Macaulay Culkin and, and Tim Robbins. Did, did any of the other um, supporting actors stand out here for you guys? I mean, I think that that across the board, there are some really, really excellent performances. The one that really surprised me, um, not because I was like, oh, I can't believe that that guy is giving such a good performance. But because it is, again, this really beautiful uh, piece of of acting is the monologue that um, that Paul gives. uh, So played by um, Pruitt Taylor Vince in the uh, pool hall bar boxing club that they're in uh, when he reveals to Jacob that he is being pursued by demons and he thinks he's going to hell. That bit of acting is really, really strong. And I like I made a note of it because I was like, damn, like that that's really good. I agree. I was going to mention the exact same thing. It's such a small but such an important thing because, you know, it's how he does what he does with that little stuff. It is 
so impactful and same even with a little glance in the car just before the bomb goes off like it's just these are very important moments that if it hadn't been done right then it's much less believable i, I was super impressed with uh, i i will mm-hmm. say i actually um i i, I really like danny aiello in this movie i i found some of his scenes were a little over the top but i also think they were supposed to be given the his nature of you know being an angel or savior or whatever too um i really like those what i will say though uh is the you know as the chiropractor slash angel character uh number one i thought he seemed really convincing as a chiropractor but the thing about the chiropractic scenes i didn't love was the sound effects it sounded like somebody was chewing on stalks of celery every time he popped bones it was really really bizarre so i did not love the sound effects there i i get that and i wonder if again that that was deliberate it's part of this like unsettling tone uh and also we have to remember that it's like 1990 for the audience watching this and maybe they don't really know so much about chiropractic at that point but the sound of of bones and everything kind of like shifting and resetting is gross in general and so again, it gives this kind of like unsettling feeling. Like there's a lot of people watching this going like, oh, every time like I mean, listen, it happens. You're you're also both of you are also a little bit younger. Once you hit 50, that's kind of what it sounds every morning when I yeah, get out of Yeah, to be bed. clear, I don't have a problem with the sounds <laughs> of the bones in terms of like, I find it upsetting. I find it like you could have honked a, a clown horn. Uh, and it would have been as appropriate for me as what it sounded like, where it's like, oh, he jumps on top of the guy to do an adjustment. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's the wrong sound. And that's why I found those sounds were just like not right. Um, but I, I'm curious about other things about this movie, because there's a lot of um, unique uh, sound effects and music that kind of help add to this this overall kind of like brooding, dark, unsettling uh a movie. So talk to me about how you, you thought those played in. I think the music is really good in this. I think that they have a terrific use of the, the, the piano theme. It's uh, to me, I'd forgotten it. And it was like immediately came back and it's one of those simple things. It just sets the tone. So then it works so well with the counterparts where you have the, the sound of the underground in the subway, the sound of screeching tires, the sound of like all these other things. Um, so I, I think that the sound and the music are very well done. I'm like really glad with how they did that. Yeah, I got a real uh, a, a kick out of of their use of of diegetic music. So like the music that is um, happening in scene that like everyone else can hear because it's like this great telegrapher. So there's this moment uh, when they're at the party uh, and uh, you know dancing and stuff like that and. Uh, Tim Robbins goes up the stairs and he has his palm read by uh, the the medium who's like, this says you're already dead. And the the music playing at that point is what's going on. And it's just like I was just like delighted by that. Yeah, I I, I found in general, the music was really good. Not necessarily taking a ton of notice of it, but like for me in general, it like it set the tone properly. It was there there's a lot of that kind of like creepy background horror movie music at points where you're like, I'm tense right now. This is the correct music for me to be tense to. So like, I, I definitely found that um, those kind of, of um, you know, it programmed me in the right way for what was coming uh, in those various scenes. Uh, the, the one thing I found pretty creepy in terms of sound effects, which I do think generally were done pretty well, minus the chiropractor noises, um, were some of the demon noises too. Like I definitely found at points where those sounds that they add for some of the demon things, the shaky head people and those kinds of things were like, oh yeah, that's that's unsettling too. That's it. Like the unsettling, disturbing nature of it. That is exactly it. Like that's that's that creep thing where you're kind of like on edge, you know, Tense little shiver up your spine and yeah, yeah 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 well and i think made all the more effective because um all of those demons um are done uh, the effects are done in camera as well like there are no post-production effects uh done on the demons like this is all uh this is all like makeup and prosthetics and um 
having actors like shake their heads at a, a slower frame rate and then speeding it up. And so it's, I think all of that holds so well today because there's none of those like, oh man, that effect just really kind of lame, you know, and it's because it all still looks so good. So when you couple that with its really unsettling sounds, it all works really, yeah. really well. I, I agree for the most part. I think the, the, sh- so to your point, the camera um, effects that they used for the, the, the shaky head people, creepy like that's really well done i don't love all the practical effects for some of the demons that you see going by in the cars or the train where you're like that's a dude wearing a mask like those ones aren't my favorite but um the ones with like the doctor with no eyes and that that kind of thing some of those are very well done too so i'd say it's like you know 70 30 for me i'm like most of the time it's pretty effective sometimes i found maybe some of the the um masks or or, or other facts that they added to the, for the demons didn't hold up for me um especially the masks so those are the ones that stood out for me where i was just like nah not not into it but yeah, I, I actually didn't mind them especially since you see them so quickly they go by so fast and it's like is that a mask is that a person is there a person wearing a mask and that's on purpose it like and so it's this really kind of like it it, to me it just amped up the the vibe of unsettlingness yeah i found i found the stuff that was like you know the the tales or the the like unexpected things coming out of you know somebody or wings or whatever where you're like oh oh what's that like those i found a little more unsettling than than the um any sort of the uh makeup or whatever that they would have been doing to creepify somebody's face but that's for me i think one of the questions i have too is the hospital scene Mm -hmm. is it a little much uh that's a good question. It is hard to watch. I found parts of it very difficult to watch because it's like extreme shaky cam. And uh, you both know uh, my profound dislike of shaky cam. But I also, I'm going to say I didn't mind it here so much because I felt like the scene needed to be deliberately hard to watch. And it was really cool to me seeing like that low shot of the hospital gurney where like the one wheel is like twisting around and stuff because we've seen that shot echoed in a lot of other movies since. And it's cool when you see like the primary shot for the inspiration of things like the vertigo zoom um you know like the way fast the fast and the furious changed the way that like picture cars uh are filmed it, it it's cool to see like oh this sh- like low down shot of a wheel um that you see in a lot of other films like this is where it comes from and again with the the sort of practical effects or the use of actors um uh who who have uh, disabilities or um, uh, deformities from thalidomide, I think was one of the, uh, or a couple of the actors um, who are like crawling over top in the, uh, in the asylum. All of that is, I think, just really effective to give you this kind of like real madhouse feeling. Yeah. So like I'm on board with that because, again, this is it's a horror movie. And so I'm on board when this just goes full horror. Yeah, I I actually think that that part was too much. I do like the descent into the hospital, which just gets like weirder and weirder. I thought that actually having the, the, the people sort of like malformed limbs, I thought that was too much. But but otherwise it really fits that you just go so deep into the core of this place, the, the, the deepest place. And then that's where it all happens. So that for me actually works. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting one for me. I, I will say the um, rolling through the piles of limbs on the floor felt a little bit Halloween funhouse for me. Um, I was like, all right, that's not my favorite part, but like the rest of it was definitely um, I mean, that's probably the most unsettling upsetting part of, of the movie. Uh, I that's, that's where I found, I forget exactly where it happens, but it happens like 60% of the way through the movie or something like that. And then there's nothing at all on that level of 
of, um, you know, disturbing that happens again. And so I think that's where I found, you know, that, that uneven tone for me, where it's like, you're, you're going up this roller coaster ride, you'd go down this big hill and then it's just flat after that in comparison. So I, I wish there'd, you know, being a little bit more of that. If we're going full horror, then let's go, you know, like really ramp it up as he's getting towards his final moments or something and really lean into that aspect of it. That's uh, a little much, but I mean, overall it was pretty upsetting, uh, very disturbing um, part of the movie. So uh, interesting tie in here. I mean, this, this movie is a little bit of a, a war movie, Um you know, some of the scenes uh, where they're, you know, having a battle in Vietnam. Uh, I'll give you one guess who they hired to do the five day boot camp for them to teach them how to look like soldiers. Was it Oliver Stone? No, but close. The Dale. The Dale, the Dale guy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Dale Dye, yet again, the military consultant for all things Vietnam, came in to do a five-day boot camp for them uh, before they shot their uh, war scenes uh, in this movie. Uh, I don't have too many details on whether their boot camp for Vietnam was as terrible as the folks who were on Platoon. Hopefully nobody lost any thumbs or anything. Uh, but yeah, but Dale Dye, yet again, um, you know, a fine alumni of our show uh, popping up yet again. Um, I think it does uh, make me ask the question um, around some of those soldiers, just as, as they were going through this movie, <laughs> There's a couple scenes in the movie where those um, his his fellow soldiers show up uh, and then we even get some scenes where they're talking to each other without him present. I'm curious whether those uh, vets that he was trying to uncover the conspiracy with, were they in purgatory as well or was this guilty conscience or what what was that part about? Because I think that's one of the parts of the movie that I didn't get. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Chris. I didn't get it either. Like there is this one moment um, when Jacob is talking to his, um, you know, army buddy, Frank, and Frank's like, you know, we're, we're, we're all backing out. We're, we're dropping this, um, you know, don't call me again kind of thing. And he hangs up and then puts the phone off the receiver. And then he, turns and he looks at the other armory buddies and they're all sort of at Frank's place. And that is such a, it it is a very deliberate shot that is done without Jacob being present. And this is away from his perspective. So the only thing that I can really draw from that, uh, because now it feels like we're outside of his subconscious Unless, you know, in this dream state, he's seeing everything and he's sort of omniscient in this dream state. But it feels kind of like his army buddies are in purgatory as well, that everybody's in purgatory here. This is lost. And uh, and that uh, his his buddy, Paul, when the when the uh, car blows up actually goes to hell. That's that's what happens. He he's gone to hell now and Jacob at the end being let up uh let up the stairs by Gabe, he goes to heaven and all of these other members of the platoon who are in purgatory will have their own kind of uh kind of of thing happen to them. So that that's what I think. I, I wouldn't have thought about it that way, but that's actually really interesting. The the way I thought of it was more that he needs for them to turn against him um, for it to make sense for his journey. Like he's on his own. He, he doesn't have that support. Everything's falling apart. The case is falling apart. He needs to go through that. So that's that's the mental construct that, that happens. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Result. So that they're continuing to burn things away that that uh, everything is everything that he was has been burnt away. And, and then right. he needs to lose everything. He can. Hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I, I was that too. I was very curious because the 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 only way I could make sense of the whole uh, drug experiment storyline was that um, he was in some way involved with this, and that there was some element of his guilt. Because in the beginning, you don't see him 
taking drugs. You don't see him having any of the weird side effects that all the other folks doing when he's running away. I assumed he was like, okay, well maybe if he's running away, cause he knows what's happening and he's got to get out of there. And then that's the only way that in his subconscious, he would know anything about these experiments and these trials and the drugs. And so I was like, okay, is he playing this story out in his, in his subconscious? Because He's trying to figure out, you know, what they are doing. And it's all a story he's telling himself uh, as he's trying to come to to terms with his like involvement with this drug, because otherwise I had like no way to make sense that he knew anything about the drugs. Right. That's that's where I really started. So I was like, is this part of the guilt for him, too, is these other characters who he's had some role in? making this happen, too? I I found that that storyline weird. I just say the weird. I mean, it. It would fit into my sort of like betrayal and treachery narrative that I've set up, uh, you know, from the the ninth circle of hell kind of thing that we talked about earlier. Um, but he also seems like genuinely concerned and freaked out when the members around him start like seizing and having, um, you know, yeah, massive going off in different directions. Kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. And and his subconscious, um, you know, if it is his subconscious that, that we're talking about here, when the when the chemist is talking to him, like there, you know, he's he's telling him that, like, the platoon got dosed and, um, you know, that I, I and that nobody knew except like you know, the chemist and the, and the brass kind of thing. And so there's this sense to me that like, that he didn't know, um, what was going on with that because it would then sort of like, I don't know, the, his own personal narrative then doesn't quite hold up in some ways. Yeah. Uh, if that happens, I, I found, I found his, personal narrative was a little iffy for me in either way because either he did or didn't know about drugs and this is a weird story to be making up in your subconscious but uh uh you know i think not quite getting it is you know the case for me for a lot of this movie and i don't want to pull on more of the threads so i'm curious for each of you um before we go like is this a movie that you'd recommend to folks who haven't seen it i i would recommend it to uh, horror aficionados um, who haven't seen it, I wouldn't recommend this movie to most people. I, I am very glad that I have seen it. I agree. I think this is, you know, you really need to know who you recommend it to and, and their willingness to sit through something like this and their stomach for it. But for those who are interested either because they like sort of a more uh, horror movie with a twist, kind of like a different type of horror, or they like... Uh, to kind of think about the structure of a story this way and the, the how it goes, I think it could be very interesting to experience for the first time. But yeah, you 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 should know the person you recommend it to and and do it uh, accordingly. Yeah, don't recommend this movie lightly. Yeah, I I I wouldn't recommend this movie to most people. I think like you guys, it's like sure, there's five percent of people or whatever who'd be really into this, or I don't know what percentage of people. Uh, I, I mean, it's an interesting one for me to. Uh, know that it's become a uh, you know a cult classic since, and so many people have those like strong affections for this movie. Um, not not my bag, but that's okay, uh, and that's why we do this because we get to find out new stuff sometimes that is our bag, uh, and other times uh, I make uh, Evan watch. There's something about Mary, so uh, that's probably a good place to call it. So that's what we thought about Jacob's Ladder. Uh, we'd love to know what you thought about this movie. Uh, you can always find us on Twitter at How Did You Miss This? That's H-D-Y-M-T underscore pod. While you're there, take a look at some of the movies we're going to be watching uh, and send us any questions or thoughts or feedback you have on uh, any of the movies we have talked about. Uh, if you enjoy what we're doing here, do us a favor, take a second, rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you happen to be listening. And next week, we're going to be back with you when we'll be watching 13 assassins and we're going to be seeing whether the samurai movie still has any honor or whether it's something that should have stayed missed thanks for listening we'll talk to you then